We're picking up on a PowerPoint that I did a couple of weeks ago, and this will be the third installment. Hopefully you still have your PowerPoints, printouts from back then. And we were on slide 20 when I ran out of time. Slide 20, I have it up here on the screen, which is Luke 12 and verse 10. And it's about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, here's a topic that I've gotten a lot of questions about over 30 or 40 years. A lot of people will email and just ask about this particular issue of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Before we talk about that, let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather and open up your word together and encourage one another and put our hearts and minds into the truth of the gospel so that you might work graciously in our midst and in our individual lives. In Jesus' name, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so therefore, um, I've been working my way through Luke. Remember Simeon, Zacharias, various people, Elizabeth. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and they prophesy or speak forth about Christ. So my claim has been, to summarize the two presentations before this one, is that the way we discern a true work of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit causes us to confess Christ. And if we would use that means of discernment provided by God for us in the scripture, we wouldn't get in to as much trouble as the church gets into. We wouldn't listen to a lot of people who are being listened to. Because they may talk about everything under the sun, but they don't confess Christ. Now, on this matter, Luke 12, verse 10, let me read it. And everyone who will speak a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. Now, I pointed out several weeks ago, last time we were in this lecture, that forgiven in Luke Acts is the word in the Greek for released. So the human race is in bondage to sin. The gospel comes to us. The Holy Spirit causes people to confess Christ. And part of the gospel message is the forgiveness or release of sins. When Jesus talked in Luke 4 about the release of captives, he was talking about captives to sin and forgiveness. So forgiveness for captives. Now what about this seemingly difficult passage here? The one who speaks against the Son of Man. Son of Man is a self-designation of Jesus which denotes the Messiah as prophesied in the book of Daniel. I believe that because the Holy Spirit causes us to confess Christ, and that this is the case throughout Scripture, when the Holy Spirit is blasphemed, Christ is not preached, Christ is not confessed, and people are not pointed to the truth of the gospel. 
Now, let me read the context. I'm going to go back to verse 8. If you want to open up your Bibles to Luke 12, I'm going to start with verse 8 and read verses 8 and 9 as well. And then we want to look at Hebrews, and we'll try to get an answer about this. Luke 12, 8 and 9. But I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man shall confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. So this matter of confessing Christ, which is a work of the Holy Spirit who causes us to confess Christ, is a salvific issue. If we do not confess Christ, we will be lost because we'll be denied by him on the day of judgment. Now, here is why the blaspheming Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin, or unforgiven sin, I should say, released, because there's no other way we'll confess Christ. We absolutely will not. If we're not uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, regenerated, filled by the Spirit, when the issue comes before kings or governors or people that persecute us or even just anybody nondescript person, so to speak, the Holy Spirit will cause us to confess Christ. We blaspheme him, we won't. And if we won't, we're lost. Yes, uh, Brian, there's a, make sure it's on. You speak right into it. I just have a question why it says angels of God. Well, the idea of the angels of God would be the eschatological kingdom and the coming of Messiah at the end of the age is accompanied by angels. If you look through Revelation, you'll see angels about the throne. So it's not meaning the angels themselves will be the final judge, but they're associated with eschatological judgment. That's how this speaks. Now, if you're interested, I don't want to spend our whole time on this, but turn to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and I want to discuss this. Every once in a while, I get an email from somebody. I think I committed the unforgivable sin, and I'm going to hell. Well, what did you do? Well, I said this or I did that, and I would like to be forgiven, but I don't think God wants me. I hear that. I don't believe, I think that there are issues that happen to people. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about blaspheming Christ through denying the Holy Spirit altogether and claiming his works are from Satan. But some of these issues are psychological things going on with people where they just need to trust the gospel. If you want to know you're not committing the unpardonable sin, confess Christ. Okay? Go forth and confess the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the Holy Spirit will cause you to do that. And you will find eventually assurance. Now, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, 
and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, those here who are, are apostate, fallen away, notice what they're doing at the end of verse 6, crucifying to themselves the Son of God, putting him to open shame. The one thing they're not doing is confessing Christ, right? And so the Holy Spirit is at work in people's lives. They confess Christ. These people are putting Christ to shame, and so they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Peter. So um, several of my friends from the Catholic faith tradition believe you can lose your faith or your salvation. Okay. uh, If you committed a mortal sin, I mean, if someone has the Holy Spirit, what you're essentially saying is, their salvation is assured. They can fall away, but we all live in this fleshly, sin, sinful body. Yeah. So is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah, what I'm saying is, I don't know if I've said it, but I'll say it now. For those who truly know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, who confess him, the warnings against blaspheming the Holy Spirit will scare them will motivate them, and they won't do it. It will be an effective warning, and it continue to be effective. Now, if indeed somebody curses and blasphemes Christ and curses and blasphemes the Holy Spirit, that person is lost. So they were never really converted in the first place. Well, they would be people like Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8 who appeared to be converted... He was baptized along with the rest who heard there. But Peter told him eventually he wanted to buy the Holy Spirit so he could add it to his magic act. And Peter told him his money could perish with him and prophesied that he was going to perish. And then he says to Peter, well, pray for me that that doesn't happen. He didn't say, he didn't repent and pray himself. You were mentioning Roman Catholicism. A lot of people think if a holy man prays for them, that might carry some weight. Okay, that there are these people out there that have higher status and we could only get them on our side. Rather than realizing the truth of the Gospels, we have full access to the throne of grace, each of us. Eric. Yeah, Bob, I was going to even give more credence to your view. Um, back, if everyone turns their Bibles to Luke chapter 11, verse 13, you have Jesus praying to the Father to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, or he's, he says that won't the Father do that? Because a good father gives good gifts. So right after he talks about the Holy Spirit being given, he ends up casting out see, a... See, right on that mic. Yep, he, he ends up casting out a demon. And what's interesting is in the very next verses, notice down in verses 14 through 15, he casts out a demon and what happens? The people attribute the work to Satan. Yep. So now the power of the Spirit is being attributed to Satan's work. Well, if they keep doing that, it's the Holy Spirit that testifies of Christ. If you always attribute the work of the Spirit to Satan, then you'll never come to Christ because you always say, well, that's satanic. The same formula happens in Mark chapter 3. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit then is exactly what you're saying, Bob. It's attributing the work of the Spirit to Satan, thereby 
never hearing the testimony of the Spirit. Not confessing Christ. Not confessing Christ. Okay, that brings back some memories of people who called me over the last 30, 40 years thinking maybe they did it. I remember one person called and said, well, I think I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I said, well, what'd you do? She said, I, I said, Kenneth Hagin's of the devil. <laughs> and I said, uh, well, I don't think, Kenneth Hagin's not the Holy Spirit. But some have been confused by the false prophets who claim they speak by the Spirit, even though they don't confess Christ. And they say, if you don't listen to us and all these false signs and wonders that we do, you're blaspheming the Spirit. Because you're saying it's not the Spirit, but we're not because we're using the biblical test of the confession of Christ. And when they don't, it never was the Holy Spirit, so we couldn't be blaspheming the Spirit by attributing to some other source, even Satan, these false signs and wonders because they're not confessing Christ. Yes, Brian. Yeah, in regards to uh, Peter's comment, help me with the verse, Bob. I, I can't recall it, but it's, it's uh, they went out from us, blah, blah, blah. Therefore, they never, yep. they never were of us. So that's a, a that's point. That's 1 John uh, right, but 4, you know, 20. Somebody looked it up. One, it's in 1 John chapter 4, or is it, maybe it's earlier than that. Right, which goes to the point of showing how the shepherd's not going to lose his sheep. We need to be secure in our assurance. Yeah, I, I one time uh, was teaching on this. I wrote an article about it. Somewhere I have an article about this on CIC website. And there's an ex-charismatic pastor that is now an atheist. And he renounced Christ, renounced the gospel, renounced the church, and he was off enjoying his life as an atheist. And uh, a fellow that used to come to Sunday school, remember Dan, Thunder Dan? He gave my article to this guy that he knew was an apostate. And I got an email from the apostate pastor who said, well, I think your member Dan is trying to help me here, but there's no point to it. He said, because now that I've renounced Christ, I've become wealthy. I got a wonderful family. I love my life. I don't have any guilt anymore because there's no reason to feel guilt if there's no Christ. And he was happy being an atheist. He wasn't worried about he committed the unpardonable sin. He didn't want anything to do with Christ or Christianity or anything like it because life is better without Christ. So he says. And so there's your apostate. Yes. So, Bob, according, if we double back to Hebrews again, what you're basically saying from a uh, from a Roman Catholic perspective is that they they always remain in bondage. There is no assurance. No, and that's oh, no. what's going on here. They they just don't understand salvation and sin nature being. They don't believe in granting assurance. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's really Thank bad you. because many of you know more about it than I do. Back here. Sean, on this topic, in a, a uh, which one? I was raised Catholic as well, so I'm recovering. Um, recently, I had a conversation with my father, who was just off the charts Catholic, and he was chatting about 
attending his grandson's swimming meet in college. Didn't remember if he won. Didn't remember if the, what kind of time he swam. All he could remember was the fact that he had missed a holy day of obligation to attend it. The guilt yeah. is unbelievable. Yeah. It's continual law works with no assurance of forgiveness. Law works, law works. And that's what Paul said in Galatians. You're just always under a curse because you never can get free. Does this make sense now? If the Holy Spirit causes us to confess Christ and we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, we'll never confess Christ, so we're lost. Now, there were people, what about this thing, the one who speaks against the Son of Man? Just think about it. There were people during Jesus' earthly ministry and after who, no, we don't think he's the Messiah, they didn't want to listen to him, who may have been converted on the day of Pentecost. They hadn't committed the unpardonable sinner, they wouldn't have got pardoned. What about Paul? What did Paul have to say about the Christ that Stephen preached? It wasn't good. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? But was he converted? Right. And so those who see full evidence and know that Christ is the promised Messiah, but yet blaspheme the Spirit rather than confess him, that's the unpardonable sin or the unpardoned sin. By the way, the verse was found by some of our young people here. Uh, 1 John two nineteen. is that correct? Yep, they went out from us, so they were not of us. And that doesn't become apparent sometimes until it actually happens. Now, we're not just saying that somebody was going to this Lutheran church, now they went over to the other Lutheran church. So they went out from us. That's, it's not a parochial thing. It's whether they continue to confess Christ. Yes. I had people try to use that 1 John 2.19 in talking to me about when we left TCF, if you can believe that misuse of Scripture. Um, well, I hope that that would not be a proper use because we're most definitely confessing Christ. And I would hope that they are too. And if they are and we are, then nobody left anybody as far as the gospel's concerned. Well, let's keep going here. I have uh, a bunch more slides. Now, it talks about being called before kings. I find this one very intriguing. And I think it's more literal than we may understand. And you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about how or what you will speak, for it shall be given you in that hour what you are to speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now we have data to help us understand what this means because Paul in Acts was called before kings and authority. So were other apostles. And what did they do? What did they do? Confess Christ. Remember the one king says, you're almost persuading me to be a Christian? 
And Paul says, I wish you were like me other than these chains. He didn't want to wish ill on the king. Why is this important? Here's why. And I, I may have mentioned this several weeks ago. When you're called in front of kings or anybody else, we, we claim we don't have kings in America, but I'm beginning to wonder. But uh, when you are called in front of dignitaries and authorities, the tendency is to be in awe of this person's status. Okay? And the, other, and the tendency is, well, if I could find favor with this really important person, then that person could do good things for me and I'd be better off. And so the fear of man has a tendency to, to set in. And we want to say things flattering to the king rather than to preach the gospel. So the reason you don't plan a, a clear ahead of time, because you may be plotting how you can gain favor with the king. The Holy Spirit will cause you to confess Christ if you're a Christian. And when you get called in front of the dignitary, you will confess Christ. Yes, uh, we want to bring the mic over to, to Floyd. Make sure you speak loudly right into it so that I have it on the recording. Thanks, Bob. Yeah. Uh, can you talk into the context of this verse, who the you is? The disciples. What, what the meaning of brought before governors and kings is and... When, well, they'll, when they'll they deliver be, when they deliver you up, what what do those terms mean? Is that I'm being invited into a um, a dignitary dinner, or is that being brought before judges to be condemned for your Christian faith? Well, for my sake, as a testament, my sake. So we might be called in to account for why we're preaching Christ. So it's, you're not being invited to a, a delegate dinner. Well, I don't know if you ruled that out, but that's not usually what happens. No, I was talking about, I think you find the answer in the book of Acts. Yeah, but that doesn't mean in any other kind of context you wouldn't have a similar temptation to create a favor of the highfalutin. Um, What we have that everyone doesn't have is Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit, so we confess him. Now, this doesn't mean that pastors don't need to study for their sermon. <laughs> That's not what it means. <laughs> well, I didn't have time to get my sermon ready, so I'll just see what the Holy Spirit does. And No, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> okay, let's go on here. Here's the commissioning. This is very important. Commissioning of the apostles by Jesus after his resurrection. Luke 24, 46 through 49. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now this happens in Acts 1 and 2. But notice here, it's written. So the commission 
by the Messiah of his disciples to go preach is grounded in prophecy in the Old Testament. Now, where is it written that the Christ, Messiah, would suffer? And where is it written that he would be raised on the third day? Anybody want to answer that? Isaiah 53, Jim said he's absolutely right. It does say that. And uh, the mic over here to Eric. I know he's going to reference the psalm. The, the psalm 1610. Is psalm what you're 1610 and then Isaiah 53. Yeah, amen. Amen. It's all in there. And then Psalm 22. And there's aspects of this elsewhere in the Old Testament. Now, notice it says for repentance for forgiveness. This theme of forgiveness or aphasis in the Greek means release. The theme of the release from sins is throughout Luke-Acts, not to mention other passages in the New Testament. But the release from sins, this is our message. So the Holy Spirit causes us, as we are clothed with power from on high, to proclaim repentance for the release from sins and to be witnesses of the truth about messianic salvation. We ought to preach Christ. I love, that's what I love about Philippians. When Philippians talks about proclaiming the gospel, it uses the terminology preach Christ. Christ himself is the content of our preaching. He's the one who brings release from sins. He's the one who promises to send the Holy Spirit another comforter. And so this is exactly what happens. Repentance is taught here. Notice turning from idols, vain things to serve the living God. You see that in Acts and so forth. So again, the Holy Spirit causes us to confess Christ. Now I have in this PowerPoint, we have a few left here. If anybody still needs a copy We have in this PowerPoint, I have 36 slides. And you might notice a whole lot of redundancy. All different verses. Because slide after slide has a passage or two that says that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we confess Christ. Why the redundancy? Because we don't get it. People go around the world to go to meetings, miracle meetings or whatever they go to, thinking the Holy Spirit is there, but Christ is not preached. I'm not making that up. Or they preach a Christ that's a different Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11.4. Before I moved out of my old office, I had to throw 95% of my heresy books because I didn't have room in our family room for all of the books I had. And I thought, if i got to get rid of books, I'll get rid of the heresy, keep the truth. So I don't have shelves of heresy books I used to have. But a lot of them were from the Word of Faith movement. And they talk about Jesus as Lord, but they don't confess the Christ of the Bible. Luann, do you want to get her to mic? Speak right into it. I just wanted you to comment again, maybe as redundancy, but sola scriptura, because when I'm looking at the word witnesses today in our postmodern generation, um, we were 
talking about Bill O'Reilly, who wrote that book, and I can't think of the title right now, Killing Jesus. And somebody had specifically asked him um, about the resurrection, crucifixion, resurrection. He said, well, his book isn't about that, and he wasn't prepared to comment on that because he wasn't there. So in this postmodern... Yeah, he, he doesn't have any clear evidence of the resurrection from sources outside of the Bible so he says so he didn't include it in his book. Right. So if we can just have again in a nutshell, you know, the purpose of our sola scriptura and its authority as our witness, you know, we don't have to be at every historical event to know that it's true or not. Yeah, we have every reason to believe in the resurrection of Christ, both from scripture and frankly from any data that might be out there from any other source. One thing that's interesting about the biblical data, everybody agreed that the tomb was empty. Nobody was saying, yes, there's a tomb, and yes, there's a dead body in there with the piercings of the cross. Nobody said that. The soldiers that guarded it took money to lie to say the disciples stole the body. In Acts 2, when the Gospels preached... This Jesus whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. Here are thousands of people, some of whom had been in Jerusalem and in Judea during Jesus' public ministry. Where are the witnesses to come forth say there's a dead body in the grave here? And here it is. They all either kept silent or agreed that it was empty like those soldiers that guarded. Yes. And God says, blessed are those that believe and have not seen. Right. We haven't actually seen the resurrected Christ because he ascended into heaven. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, and if O'Reilly, I think he's Catholic, right? Well, he could have gone to 1 Corinthians 15 where it's claimed that the resurrected Christ appeared to many witnesses, up to 500 witnesses. What would be wrong with giving the claim of Scripture that's grounded on witnesses? You know, so many world religions aren't based on any historical anything. Eric and I were talking about that on the radio. By the way, it came out pretty good. I was editing that. We were talking about Mormonism. Where's the proof that Joseph Smith spoke for God? There isn't any. Where's the proof that what's in the Book of Mormon is truly inspired by God and it comports with what we know about what we can see in the real world? Well, there isn't any. It's just a blind leap of faith. Christianity is grounded in truth, witnesses, eyewitnesses, and what God has promised, what God has done, and what we can be assured of. So we can preach the resurrection of the dead like Paul did in Acts and be on sound ground. Now let's go to Acts 1 and verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What will happen when you receive the Spirit? You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So this is programmatic for the book of Acts. Just as Luke 4, 18, 
is programmatic for Luke. X 1.8 is for X. This is the outline. This is the program of God revealed in X is the Holy Spirit comes upon those who'd been promised that he would. And the result of the Holy Spirit coming upon them is they confess Christ. They become, the word for martyr, martyria is the Greek for witness. And so they do. And this, again, is evidence of the work of the Spirit. The amount of data we have in the New Testament that this is the way it is is overwhelming. This is undeniable. This is biblical. This is practical. This will help you. Did the one claiming to have the anointing of the Spirit confess the person and work of Christ. Yes or no? Give them a big audience for a long time. Do they? Yes or no? Don't get deceived. Don't think, oh, but the Dalai Lama is so peaceful. <laughs> He's such a nice person. Well, even the Pope. Now, people like the Pope that they have now. Right? He doesn't have the fancy Pope mobile compared to some of them and rides the bus or he likes to hang out with the poor people. Oh, it's all very commendable. But uh, here's the question. You hear the speech, is Christ preached, including the blood atonement, the forgiveness of sins, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection from the dead, and the sure and certain hope that we have in the gospel. Is that the case? Is the Pope preaching that? No. What? Social justice. Well, what good social justice, so I get this on the recording. Here's a question, not to be crass. I think we ought to be kind and just people in our relationships to one another, the people around us, at work or wherever we are. But, big question for you here. Is this definitive? The Holy Spirit calls us to confess Christ. Listen, social justice. What about the justice that happens before the throne of God on the day of judgment? What about the people who are recipients of, quote, social justice, but are not recipients of the justice of God through the imputed righteousness of Christ? They might have a little better buggy ride through this life, but one day they'll stand before the throne, asked to give an account for their sins, and they'll say, well, I was a recipient of the Pope's social justice. And they'll have nothing but filthy rags and no hope and no forgiveness and no ground to stand. Is the gospel preached. What about, it's not just Catholic. The word of faith says that Jesus became a man and was tortured by Satan in hell. So they have another Jesus, not the one of the Bible. So how are they going to help people? They say you're going to be healthy and wealthy. Well, fine, maybe you actually will. Most of the followers don't. They get poor giving money to these preachers. But... What are they going to do on the Day of Judgment? 
tell the judge of all the earth that, well, Kenneth Copeland told me I'm supposed to have health and wealth, and I managed to get it. What good is it going to do? Where's the forgiveness of sins? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, so they claim to have the Holy Spirit. Where is the gospel? Now, notice what happens in Acts 2, and I just take a snippet of this. We've spent a lot of time in Acts 2, and we're going to go back there next week. <laughs> Acts 2, 22 through 24. Men of Israel, notice this. Listen to these words, says Peter, after the Holy Spirit came upon him. What happens? Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again. There you have it. This is an answer to Luann's question there, right here. These were the people who saw all of this. They were the eyewitnesses. And every one of them, any one of them could have said, Peter, you're lying. There's a dead body in a tomb. Let us show you. Nobody stepped forward to say, no, there's still a body in the tomb. Nobody. And he was able to use the resurrection as evidence for the gospel that he was preaching. There's so much in these verses, but here you have the gospel confessed, Christ confessed, when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles, particularly Peter. Notice he says, delivered over by the predetermined plan of foreknowledge of God. Why was that important to be said? Because the critics could and did say, what kind of Messiah is hung on a tree? Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Yes, Peter. Uh, Bob, I'm I'm not trying to, again, beat up the Catholic faith tradition, but I, you know, after being in that for so long, one of the things, and I think a lot of us can relate to this, is as Catholics, you are so focused on uh, the part about being uh, nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. Yeah. I mean, that's what I think I was held in bondage to, the guilt that was pushed upon us, not focusing on the resurrection, but, you know, what we did to Christ. Yeah, so in their icons, Jesus is still on the cross. Right. And so, again, focused on that versus the resurrection was... Yeah. Uh, I'm sure a lot of us still process through that, you know. That's why the resurrection needs to be preached. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's gospel. The resurrection is gospel. Yeah, that, that Jesus was a religious leader who was martyred and suffered. They can accept that. But what about the full-blown claims of the gospel Repentance for forgiveness of sins, the resurrection from the dead. Let's go on in Acts, Acts 4, 8, and 10. Then Peter, notice how now Luke uses this phrase, 
to get our attention to listen. He says, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you go back to Simeon, Zacharias, Elizabeth, Mary, John the Baptist, Jesus, Peter here. In every case, Luke is saying the Holy Spirit came upon people and here's their confession that comes from that that points people to Christ. Okay? So here's Peter filled with the Spirit. Now we know to listen to what he says. And he said to them, rulers and elders of the people, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, notice they're indicted for their guilt, whom God raised from the dead. There's the resurrection again. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. So here we have a sign, a, a, a healing. I believe this was the healing of the lame man. Was that it? Was that right, Eric? And doesn't it say in the book of Isaiah that when Messiah comes, the lame will leap for joy? So Luke is making, through this historical event, making an allusion back to Messianic prophecy in the book of Isaiah. And here, filled with the Spirit, he confesses Christ. This is all a bit overwhelming, so much so that we'd be utter fools to miss it. How many times do we have to see the same thing before we get it? It makes it easy. You turn on God TV channel. I'm not saying you should do that. I don't have that channel, so I, but I, I know quite many years ago when it first came out, we had some friends that later moved out of state, but we'd go over and just watch these wacky preachers. It's just it's sad. People watch this stuff on TV. They think it's Christianity. How do you know whether they all claim to speak from God? How do you know whether they do? Is Christ preached? Are they preaching the person and work of Christ? So there is again Acts 4, 31, 33. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak the word of God with boldness and with great power. The apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon all of them. So we've been talking about means of grace. So here the Holy Spirit comes. They confess Christ. They preach the resurrection. They speak God's word with boldness. And there's grace. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. Oh, I promised you something. I almost goofed up and got. I gave some, something to somebody, and this was stuck in it, but it came back. This is a letter from John MacArthur dated March 20, 2014. This went out to his mailing list. I got two paragraphs I want to read here from MacArthur, which... I was excited to read because now we have Luther and John MacArthur saying this. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. Let me quote MacArthur in his latest little uh, letter here. Quote, the Holy Spirit does his work in the believer through a right understanding of scripture. 
That's why the Bible, in the Bible, he says, being filled with the Holy Spirit and let the, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly are described as parallel realities. The Holy Spirit can only do, only do his sanctifying work through the word. Their functions are inseparable. Yet ignorance of the word, ignorance of a true interpretation of the word, literally stifles sanctification. It is God's word understood with all its implications and applications, says MacArthur. Isn't that what we put on our sermons? Implications, applications. Who judges whether they're true and correct and logically connected to the text? You do. And prophecy, that's prophesying, speaking forth valid implication and application of Scripture. And the, uh, let the others judge. You can look at those and say, wait a second, that doesn't follow from the text and call us on it. And the determination is going to be whether it does or doesn't actually follow from the text. Okay, so there's MacArthur. Back to MacArthur. That the Spirit uses to sanctify the believer. So he uses these implications and applications. Quoting MacArthur, Without it, there is no growth. But show me a Christian who is healthy, growing in the likeness of Christ, increasing in kingdom usefulness, and I'll show you a Christian who is feeding deeply on God's word. Why do we preach from Scripture verse by verse by verse and bring out implications and applications? Because the Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. The Holy Spirit causes us to confess Christ. The grace of God comes to us by the means that God's ordained. This is how God works. Luann. Okay, so now then, just as a hypothetical, I'm somebody who happens to stumble across this message on the Internet, and I have grown up in a church tradition, whatever it would be, but I'm convicted now because I know I'm not in the Word, and what you're saying is very powerful. So where would you start? Where would you recommend somebody start? Um, well, you start with the Scripture itself, and then gather the resources, the best ones you can utilize to understand that. But then we need to be under godly, solid Bible teaching with other believers where we can encourage one another in this. Now, I realize some people can't find other believers, but thanks to the Internet, you can at least get good Bible teaching. Now, you can go to John MacArthur's site and hear his Bible teaching. And if we may say so humbly, I believe Eric and I will give you solid Bible teaching that you can hear. But you need other believers. Even if you gather in a home with two or three or four, you've got to do this. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. And I would say to pastors, don't believe the lies that you're being taught in seminary about marriage and family therapy or relevance or church growth theories or emergent and so forth. It's out there, make the world a better place to live in. Well, that's all fine, but it's not confessing Christ. People need to be fed. What did Jesus say to Peter? Feed my sheep. 
And it's amazing when you talk to top leaders about this, they glaze over. They can't even get it. They can't even hear it. They can't even think about it. Rick Warren, I told him, preach Christ, preach Christ, and here's what that's like, and I did so. Silence. Plead, you know, I sort of like Eric and I are saying it's the new way of pleading the fifth. What did you what did you call it, Eric? Lowest learner theology? Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the scripture, here's the implication, here's what God said. Uh, they say nothing. Nothing. You have nothing to say about God's holy word? Yeah, uh, I'm getting ahead of Eric. He has this in his sermon. They said nothing to Jesus, right? Nothing. Lost learner theology. You can't plead the fifth about scripture. If you're under a moral obligation to be a preacher and teacher of God's word, you just can't say, well, that's what happened. That's what happened to me. You don't want to talk about it. Acts 7, 55 and 56. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he, Stephen, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So here he's testifying about the resurrected Christ who had been seen to bodily ascend into heaven earlier in Acts. Stephen actually sees him through a special work of God when he was being martyred, standing at the right hand of God. Psalm 110 verse 1. So Paul was there and heard this, but he became hostile until he himself met the resurrected Christ. Acts 9, 17. And Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying hands on him, this was after his conversion, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Paul will be filled with the Spirit. What happens when he is? Acts 9.20. And immediately he began to what? Proclaim Jesus in the synagogues saying he's the son of God. Now here's a famous rabbi, Saul, in synagogues proclaiming Christ to be the son of God. The Holy Spirit came upon him and he confessed Christ. Yes. Could you show the difference between Paul was already saved and upon salvation he received the Holy Spirit. Now Ananias is fill is uh, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Could you just uh, explain to people the difference between? Okay. okay. Uh, in Acts, sometimes there. Um, how would you say it? Take for example Acts eight. This is Acts nine. In Acts 8, the gospel was preached to people. They were even baptized in water. The Holy Spirit fell upon them when the apostles from Jerusalem came. And that's when we ran into that debate and issue between Simon Magus and Peter. There's no ordo salutis you can discern out of the book of Acts. 
let me explain that. Ordo salutis is a Latin phrase that means order of salvation. So when you debate theology or teach theology, you have an ordo salutis. This is a logical arrangement, not a chronological one. Logically, this, 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 this all happened, and there's salvation. And how you order those aspects of salvation says a lot about your theology. Reformed theology teaches regeneration precedes faith. Acts isn't giving us a definitive ordo salutis. You have different orders of things that happen. Generally, they repent, they're baptized, they receive the Spirit, as Peter said in Acts 2.38. But here, in Acts, back in Acts 8, it was heard the gospel, repent, baptize, receive the Spirit, but there's a time delay. It doesn't happen immediately. This is... How can I say this? I want you to understand it. It's very important in, narrative, in interpreting narrative. There is a narrative reason for how things are described to emphasize certain things. That's what Luke's doing. So Luke purposefully... Now, don't look at me like I turned liberal. I didn't. <laughs> I'm anything but liberal. But in understanding narrative, things are put in certain places to emphasize them, not to just create a chronological thing the way we would say. The same is true with the Gospels. That's why the worst thing you could do is create a par- Gospel parallels. destroys all of the Gospels because they are telling us something and using certain techniques to do so. So what Paul wants to do Excuse me, what God does through Luke in, in Acts 9 is to emphasize Ananias' part in this. And just like in Acts 8, he emphasized the apostles' acceptance of Samaritan Christians. So then the Holy Spirit. See, when I was a Pentecostal, we tried to go through this point and figure out whether the baptism of the Holy Spirit was some separate experience okay and so we're digging in there looking to to find certain things rather than to find how is luke telling us this story and what's his point luke's point is that god incorporated into this process ananias and that the holy spirit fell upon paul and that the result was he confessed christ That's the point. He makes that point throughout Luke Acts. I wouldn't go here to find an ordo salutis. I think it'd be better to go into Romans 3 and Romans 4 and Romans 5 and places like that. Yes. Yeah, Bob thinks it's a great answer. Um, You had also mentioned earlier Acts 1-8, which is the programmatic verse for all of Acts. Right. And notice the apostles are going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, yep. and the ends of the earth. Well, what's interesting is either through the hands of the apostles or their delegates, the Holy Spirit is given. And so what God is demonstrating it is that these are his spokesmen, yep. number one. And number yep. two, you don't have one set of Christians 
of a different order in Samaria versus the Christians in Jerusalem. By the Holy Spirit coming at the hands of the apostles that stem from Jerusalem, you have unity of the entire body. They accepted the Samaritans. Exactly. Okay. Rather than getting Luke's point, we want to go find an order of salutus or a second blessing or something. It's not Luke's point. Remember, Dr. Versaput would look at you, say, what's the point of the author? Well, what about, and he'd look at you, what's Luke's point? If you didn't get it right, you wouldn't like the grade that came back on the paper. I have some. I have a few more slides. Oh my goodness! And we're out of time. I, we can't do this four different Sundays. Well, I guess you, there is no law about that, is there? But I can finish this, and then we'll go. We're going to just go back to Acts two forty-two and look at the Word of God as a means of grace. We finish baptism. Let's close by reading this, and I'll remember slide 30. 1 John four thirteen to 15. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness. There's our word. A witness is somebody who confesses that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Here again is the litmus test of discernment. My dear beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope that through these three messages so far on this, that everyone here now can discern spirits. You don't necessarily hear them banging around in houses. And it's not like the movie The Exorcist or whatever that scared everybody back in the 70s. It's whether Christ is confessed. And I'll finish the last six of these slides and we'll go back to Acts 2.42 next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making it so clear how we can know and what we need to do. Give us the boldness to proclaim your name wherever we go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. In thy holy name, amen.